This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Muller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. For decades now, Oz Guinness has been on the front lines as an evangelical author, speaker, and also as social analyst. He holds the Doctor of Philosophy degree in social sciences from Oxford University. He's also a founder of the Trinity Forum Society and has served as a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and as a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institute. He's the author or editor of more than 30 books, including A Free People's Suicide, Sustainable Freedom, and The American Future. That was the topic of a previous Thinking in Public conversation. His most recent book is Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion. I'm very thankful today to have in the studio Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to Thinking in Public. Oz, it's an honor to have you here in the studio today. Your story is really one of the most interesting stories of the 20th and 21st centuries amongst uh, evangelical Christians. But it doesn't begin where many people might expect. It actually begins in China. How did that happen? Well, my parents were medical missionaries and my grandparents before them. My grandfather was educated at Cambridge and went out and founded one of the first Western hospitals and actually treated some of the royal family in the Forbidden City and uh, knew that generation. And then my parents were both born there and they got married just as war was breaking out with Japan. So my two brothers and I were born in that terrible time where we had the Japanese army on one side and they killed 17 million in the invasion. We had the communist troops above us and the nationalist troops on the third side. And we were caught at one stage in a terrible famine in which five million died in three months, including, sadly, my two brothers. And then we moved to Nanking, as it was then, which had experienced the terrible rape of Nanking earlier. And I remember, and from five to ten we lived there, and I remember the triumph of uh, Mao Zedong and Lin Bao and the beginning of the Reign of Terror. Now, you say you remember it. You were uh, born in 1941. So when these events are taking place, you're a fairly young child. But I don't uh, remember the famine at all. Yeah, I, I have a feeling you were a pretty observant child. But you, you were born in one sense into one of the most cataclysmic uh, ideological conflicts of the 20th century. Did the people who were living there at the time understand how indeed cataclysmic the times were? Oh, I think so, yes. And of course, China, because of its invasion by European powers for more than 150 years, was in a terrible state. So one was terribly aware the Japanese invaders and earlier had been Europeans and here was communism on the edge of victory. Oh, one definitely had a keen sense. But my dad was absolutely fearless. And uh, his trust in the Lord and his own personal daredevil fearlessness almost gave me I, – I didn't grow up with any sense of fear at all. Now, during that very same time, you were observing – the communist revolution and uh, what followed in terms of all the ideological purges, eventually the cultural revolution and the rest. Uh, how did you observe that as, a, as the son of Christian missionaries in China, observing all that would take place in terms of uh, one of the most tumultuous decades, not only in Chinese history, but world history? But you tend to think anything you're grown, grow up into is just the normal. 
So I presume that this is what life was like. Uncertain, death all around, incredible newspaper headlines, dramatic things almost daily. I just presume all of life was like that. I went back at the age of 10 to England, and it was a very bleak post-World War II world of rationing and belt tightening and all that sort of thing. That wasn't a very pleasant world either. Right. They refer to Britain during those years as austerity Britain. Very much so. And uh, many of those memories continue to haunt uh, Britons today. So even conversations about things like Brexit and uh, British identity, uh, economics, that always seems to be very much in the background. That that generation seems to have an outsized influence on British politics even Mm -hmm. today. And I went to school and we had people like General Montgomery visiting us. And I, as I told you earlier, met Churchill and many times heard him on the radio. And he, for me, was my first great leader. And so for me, that's the gold standard, just as when I was a student later and I'd become a Christian. You know, I had Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott as the two Sunday preachers. And I presume all preaching was like theirs and all political leadership was like Churchill's. And I've since been rather disabused of that notion. Yes, but you did start out with the gold standard. I mean, it, it's not as if uh, somehow that's uh, unique uh, to Britain or to your generation. Uh, Churchill still looms large, I would argue, over the entire political landscape. Mm-hmm. In terms of your intellectual development, you did go back to Britain uh, when you were about 10. Uh, what was your education like thereafter? Well, I went to one of the sort of minor public schools. And in those days, it was just natural for you to have the classics. I can remember my headmaster twirling his gown with his mortarboard, talking about Pericles, you know, and Cicero as if he knew them and he knew Churchill. And, you know, that was the sort of world I was brought up in. I didn't realize how for many people something like the classics and Greek and Roman history was completely Martian in being so alien. So I'm very grateful. But that was, for my generation, quite normal. I simply have to interject here that when you speak of a public school in the British context, That's it means a private exactly school. the opposite mm-hmm. of what it means here. But in of the course, States. originally, the very wealthy educated their kids at home with a private tutor. So the public schools were <laughs> private schools, but they were for people wider than just the aristocracy. Now, in terms of the education in the classics, it's interesting to note that now here in the 21st century, especially among cultural conservatives, uh, there's a renaissance of interest in that kind of classical education. It's one of the fastest growing areas in terms of Christian education. You know, when we founded the Trinity Forum, uh, as a parallel to the Aspen Institute, the idea was we had this 3,000-year great conversation, including all the great classics, and the Christian voice, the gospel's voice, is the strongest voice in it all. There are others like Machiavelli and various other rogues like that. But the strongest voice throughout 3,000 years is the church. Speaking of, uh, of, of the Trinity Institute, which we can, we can say more later, I can tell you I've always appreciated the quality of, uh, of the products, the publications, and the, uh, the content that, uh, that it has represented. And uh, I, I, we're in a battle of ideas, and those ideas have to be well presented as well mm-hmm. as well argued. No, I agree. And we owe actually that to our first chairman, Al McDonald, who the watchword was excellence in everything. As a British schoolboy then, you were trained in the classics and, uh, and what was next was university. But I actually came to faith because my parents were back in China under house arrest. They were allowed to send me home. 
And so I went – I didn't really have their influence at all I in see. my 10 through teenage years. So I came to faith partly through a friend and partly through really a 18, two-year, 18-month, two-year conversation reading people like Nietzsche and Sartre and my own hero then on the atheist side was Albert Camus. And on the other side, people like Pascal and Dostoevsky and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis. And it was my last year at school, I was convinced. It wasn't just a matter of heritage or something to do with the family. This was true. And I came to faith. And I went to London University. But what actually was far more important uh, was meeting Francis Schaeffer, whom you knew too. And I remember my first three weeks at Labrie. This is after I graduated. Most revolutionary three weeks of my life when day after day, night after night, I'd wander out down the Swiss mountain roads, suddenly realizing the gospel, you can think about anything in the light of this truth. And my mind was expanded. And, you know, they all went blowing my mind. It was literally almost true for me. Those three weeks, the most revolutionary three weeks of my life. Well, just knowing something of your life story, it was unclear to me as to whether you had any university study before your encounter with Schaefer. No, I did. I studied philosophy and theology, but, you know, just rolled through it. It didn't particularly shape me in any decisive way. How did you come to have the encounter with Schaefer? I met his son-in-law, Randall McCauley, who said, come and meet this man. And here was this, you know, little man with a goatee and Swiss knickers and so on writing on a blackboard with lines of despair and all sorts of things I'd never come across in philosophy or anything like that. But it was going out there and seeing the coherence of it. It was literally life-shaping for me. So I gave up what I was doing, went back to Labrie, and I was there five years with him, three of those years, actually living with Francis and Edith. I never did have that experience, but about 20 years later, uh, it was Schaefer's writings first that had great impact on me, meeting him later. But uh, it was his writings first. And uh, you did a reflection 25 years after Dr. Schaefer's death. And, uh, and one of the things you note is that what his unique contribution in retrospect uh, really should be understood to be was how he demonstrated the relevance of Christianity for every dimension of life, where, as you said, you heard great preaching and uh, you'd even received very solid theology, but it hadn't engaged the culture. Mm-hmm. Even to say someone who became a real friend later, like John Stott, would admit his preaching was in a vacuum. And most British preaching in those days was. It just didn't relate to culture at all. And the freedom to think about anything and everything. Um, I realized that Schaefer was strongest of all in the history of ideas, if you put it technically. He was less good in terms of some of the other aspects of culture. So I went to Oxford to do my doctorate under, or rather on, Peter Berger to try and fill out the history of ideas with an understanding of cultural analysis. But I think that's really the great contribution that Francis Schaeffer made. And by the way, you, uh, you very movingly pay tribute to him as an evangelist, which really was the heart of the man. Well, he was the best one-to-one evangelist apologist that I've ever seen. I mean, he'd talk just as we're talking, but after about five minutes, you could see, you know, he, he said in essence, not these words, tell me your story, but he'd get into someone's life and you'd see literally his eyes welling with tears out of sheer sympathy with all that he was hearing of their story. And I think to many people, that's his greatest. He won thousands of people to faith. So did he, the Schaefer. 
But also, he was the door opener for evangelicals stuck in really a world of narrow pietism. He opened the door to think freely. And many people who criticize him now, he opened the door for them and they walked through it and they owe that to him. You make that point in, in that essay years ago, and I, I think that's actually very helpful and, uh, and a bit humbling, just thinking about the passage of time now, that even some who became uh, Francis Schaeffer's most vehement critics actually learned how to do what they do by watching Francis Schaeffer. Oh, exactly. And you have people like, say, Mark Knoll, who readily say that, and he's much more generous and objective in his criticism. But you had some others, particularly in some of the Christian colleges, who Schaefer was not an academic scholar. I'm not. And because of that, they could easily find faults in his views of Kierkegaard or Karl Barth or whatever, and then just completely dismiss him, not seeing his strengths. So 40 years ago, How Should We Then Live was, was published. And uh, I read it as a teenager, and I did not have any critical apparatus whereby to make evaluations, but I've been completely enraptured by uh, Kenneth Clark's Civilization uh, series on the BBC, which have been broadcast here in the United States. I was in my own apologetic crisis looking for a life ring, and uh, Schaefer's History of Ideas, uh, apologetic, was exactly what I needed at the time. And the reason I bring this up now is because 40 years later and uh, my own work in theology and culture and apologetics on the other side, I can certainly see some of the criticisms made of Francis Schaeffer in terms of particulars. Um, I, I think my favorite actual critique of, of, of that book is that it's a history of 500 years of Western civilization without a single footnote, which, which says something in and of itself. But, you know, the amazing thing is that the longer the distance grows, the more I believe his generalizations were basically correct. Mm -hmm. He had an incredible intuitive grasp. To be honest, when I lived with him, I rarely saw him read a book. I read the Bible, always saw that, but I rarely saw him read a book. He read magazines voraciously, and of course, he followed all the news and all that was going on. He had an incredible intuitive grasp of how to go for the nub of an issue. And in some ways, that's what he was good at. And so as you say, the generalizations stand up well, although on the critical details, no. Well, that's why others had to come along thereafter, and I would include you amongst those who helped to give the intellectual and academic apparatus, uh, not only to the history of ideas, but to the sociology of knowledge. And, uh, and it's just good to know that one of the things we can make clear is our indebtedness, a very sincere, humble indebtedness to those who came before us, but still the understanding that uh, our calling is to press on forward. Absolutely. I owe the world to Francis Schaeffer. I could give you a thumbnail criticism of him, but I owe the world to him. So I'd always begin and end with incredible gratitude. Now, in terms of my reading, and I am a man of books, uh, by the way, Clark Pinnock years ago, the late Clark Pinnock told me that when he went to Libri out of a sense of desperation, uh, he was absolutely shocked that he didn't find a library but a stack of magazines. And, uh, and, and yet he said something very interesting. He said the interesting thing was uh, that Schaefer was the first person he saw who could pick up uh, something like Time magazine and immediately go to the bigger story, immediately go to, uh, mm-hmm. to the worldview analysis. Yeah. And, and uh, as Penick said, he had never seen anyone do that. And once you'd seen it done, mm-hmm. uh, it, it became a mode of connecting dots to the rest of one's life. Yeah. 
No, that's well put. That's what I meant. He had that ability to go to the nub of the matter. Hmm. Now, I remember first encountering your name when, as a high school student, I read The Dust of Death, which, by the way, is a great title. Uh, it, it still stands up now uh, uh, that long thereafter. But it was an indictment of the uh, 1960s. And the longer I live, even just in reading I was doing last night, the more I'm convinced that we're still stuck in a conversation that began in the 1960s and the great intellectual shifts during that time. How did you come to write that book? Why the title? And uh, how do you think it stands up over time? Well, I was a child of the 60s and uh, had been around many of the European campuses. I went to India, studied under a guru to see why so many Westerners were going to the East. And 68, uh, which was a very crucial year, I spent six weeks in this country, going from the East Coast to the West Coast. Berkeley, I met Mario Savio, who led the free speech movement and so on. So I began to have a good idea of the significance of the 60s. But when I wrote, you had two books that were the gospel of the times. One was uh, Theodore Rozhak, The Making of a Counterculture, and the other was Charles Reich, The Greening of America. And both of them thought the counterculture would succeed. Now, from a Christian vantage point, you realized it wasn't founded, and so it would not succeed. So my book was probably the first realistic critique of the counterculture. But looking back 40 or so years later, you know, drug, sex, rock and roll, I covered all that. But I never saw the full seeds of what, say, became postmodern social constructionism. And you can think of all, say, the transgender revolution, all of that born in the 60s. But the seeds, the very radical seeds, as you say, we're reaping the harvest now. Many of us even then didn't see how radical some of those seeds were. So I arrived at university at uh, college in the late 1970s. And uh, I became a part of an honors program in our college and that meant we participated in seminars in which there was a liberal professor and a conservative professor and they each had a reading list and it, it was actually a brilliant educational model. But the liberal professor assigned us the greening of America as, uh, as the text that even then was to point to the future. And what's interesting in retrospect is that by the 1980s, I was convinced that Charles Reich was – completely off base, that the counterculture was dead and uh, that it had been a dead-end street. Now, more recently, I, I've, I've begun to think that something different happened and that was that the counterculture transformed itself into a culture largely through the means of, of the academic uh, world in the United States. Gramsci's long march through the institutions, that's certainly true. But the way I would argue now looking back – you know, up till the 50s, what we now call conservatism was liberalism with a capital L. In right. other words, America was a liberal project to be celebrated. It had problems, slavery, etc., but it was to be celebrated by and large. And then you had the civil rights movement, which was still out of a Christian and, as Explicitly Martin Luther so. King said, a promissory note from the Declaration and so on. But then – the civil rights movement leading to the feminist movement, leading to the anti-war movement. Then America, suddenly you had this lurch from the capital L liberalism to what we now call left liberalism, repudiating the past and seeing America as racist, militarist, chauvinist, sexist, and, and so on. And what we're reaping now, I would argue that you know the, the culture war now at its deepest root is actually a clash between 1776 
that was the American Revolution, yes. and 1789, and yes. the heirs of the French Revolution. And whether you look at political correctness or the sexual revolution, it goes all the way back to that. But as you say, that started in the 60s. 68 was probably the great turning point year. On both sides of the Atlantic, I think most Americans are unaware of just how devastating 1968 was in Europe, especially in places like Paris and uh, in the French universities. And of course, here in the United States, 1968 was an absolutely seminal year. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I was just reminded reading last night that uh, in 1968 with the Weather Underground and, and other groups, there were bombings every single week yep. in the United States. And the assassination of Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, the right. so-called police riots at the Chicago Convention. It was a dramatic That's right. year. That's right. So let, let me ask you about this. So looking back at the dust of death and at that era, I see it in retrospect a bit differently now. And uh, here's something that uh, I'm thinking about a very great deal. If you look back at the radicals of the 1960s, they were arguing that the American experiment had failed and that something new had to take its place. The classical liberals you were talking about said, no, the American experiment hasn't failed. It just has not been completed. And uh, and And what frightens me – in one sense today, what concerns me very much is that when I hear the headlines coming from America's colleges and universities now, it appears that those students are clearly saying, whether they're claiming identity politics or intersectionality, that the American experiment has failed. And they're even shocking their professors who were the children of the 60s. Oh, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And the reversal is just stunning in many years. Take political correctness and the stifling, say, of free speech. I mean, the 1960s right. radicals would have been horrified at that. I was at Berkeley a couple of months ago, and the difference between Berkeley today and Berkeley under, say, Mario Savio is extraordinary. Yes, and I think even some of the children of the 60s now recognize that because they're scared of their own students. You take a figure like Laura Kipnis at Northwestern in terms of uh, recent headline news stories. I mean, here you have someone who is celebrated as a woman of the left, but she's not left enough uh, for, uh, for many of the students mm -hmm. that she faces in the classroom today. Yeah. No, that's right. Now, after the dust of death, uh, you went on and uh, not only uh, in terms of your, your work at the University of London, you went on and did a, a DPhil at Oxford University. Was it in sociology or the sociology of knowledge? I, I know that the concern of your research was the great sociologist Peter Berger. Yes, it was in sociology. Uh, and I realized I covered the history of ideas and been introduced to that through Francis Schaeffer. But I needed the cultural analysis to go with it, to fill it out. And when I wrote The Dust of Death, I only had an undergraduate degree and I didn't have any academic apparatus and I realized I needed to. I think if I speak about my own uh, intellectual architecture, uh, Peter Berger has to be one of the four or five most important figures. And uh, I didn't do a doctoral dissertation with him as the subject, but uh, I've had an ongoing intellectual conversation with Peter Berger from the very beginning of uh, of my adult life. And one of the interesting things that I've observed from, from uh, Dr. Berger, with whom I had the honor of doing one of these thinking in public conversations, was that he has lived long enough and productively enough and brilliantly enough that he has revised some of his own theories of secularization two and three times. A very intellectually honest man. Mm -hmm. To be honest, <laughs> I thought Berger was wrong in the first place. You know, yes. he, he had bought into the secularization right. thesis and I was even then before he renounced it much closer to David Martin. Yes. David Martin who was one of my examiners and he is an uh -huh. also a great sociologist but an Anglican minister. Yes. And he was the one who, after 200 years, blew the whistle on 
the, uh, the secularization theory and show it, it was factually wrong and philosophically biased and threw it out. David Martin also has one of the best lines I know of, anything, of anyone looking at the United States because he, he spoke about American exceptionalism in one of his books writing about uh, these very issues. And he pointed out that American pollsters and uh, researchers – this was back in the 1980s. They continue to claim American exceptionalism uh, but they overclaim theology. He said, so the pollster in the United States, uh, here's a man, hit his foot on his lawnmower and used the Lord's name in vain and says, ah, more evidence of belief. <laughs> I, no. uh, that was actually insightful. Well, both David and Peter have a great sense of humor. If you know Peter, you know, he tells jokes every five minutes. <laughs> well, the thing that amazes me perhaps the most about Peter Berger is that he's in his 10th decade of life and still doing credible intellectual work. And uh, this, this latest work he did on uh, on uh, pluralization uh, by various cultures uh, I, I think is really brilliant. It helps me to understand that, w- that what secularization actually became or what actually happened – uh, was uh, was radical pluralization, um, and uh, and that's certainly what we're witnessing today. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. He also demonstrates, I think, in this kind of third model of secularization that uh, that indeed that is a way that secularization happens by pluralization, such that uh, theologically speaking, uh, traditions get evacuated from within by uh, by simply uh, the fact of pluralization creating what is just taken for granted by people in the pew to be theological options. No, that's right. And people who've lived with a consensus and they take it as self-evident, taken for granted, suddenly you're in a world in which social scientists say everyone is now everywhere. You suddenly look over your shoulder about everything and you start to have doubts and uncertainties. Yes, absolutely. Now, I'll tell you, I came across um, – I followed your writings throughout the the 70s and the 80s, but it was at the end of the 1980s that uh, that I was really intrigued with a project in which you were involved. Uh, it came out in terms of of one book. I believe the title was America in Perspective, uh, undertaken by the think tank Oxford Analytica. And I think you were very responsible for the section of that book having to deal with the future shape of religion in the United States. Well, there's more a commentary on the genius of religion in the U.S., which the Europeans didn't know. I mean, their first draft of that book, they ignored religion totally. Mm. And uh, my friend is the managing director and the founder of Oxford Analytica, and I said to him, look, this is crazy. You know, I was then working with BBC, and we did the first documentary on the rise of the religious right in Reagan's election. Mm. And no American newspapers were covering it. And I remember being at one event, and New York Times journalist was next to me. He said, what are you covering? And I said, we're looking at the beginning of a religious right, Jerry Falwell, Pat Roberts. Oh, no story there, he said. And three months later, they were doing full-page coverage trying to catch up. Well, and I think it's frankly a bit understandable because uh, nothing similar to that was happening in Europe or even in the United Kingdom. Uh, nothing really similar to that was even happening in Canada. Uh, right here in, in North America. Th- this really was a situation that uh, that really marks the United States in terms of a kind of exceptionalism. Because of the First Amendment, as you know well, you know, the disestablishment of religion meant that religion flourished, not, it, not despite disestablishment, because right. of it. It's a matter of freedom of conscience. You know well that as a Baptist and so on, but the Europeans didn't. In other words, most of the European thinkers are tone deaf I think even now, 
Um, I was at a fascinating Oxford Analytica thing a couple of weeks ago on global perspectives on Trump's first 100 days. And again, the European perspective was the odd one out. The Chinese have come to terms with Donald Trump. The Russians, the Middle Easterners, in their different ways, even when they disagree. The Europeans, though, had a view of Trump in America, very like the New York Times, and they simply didn't understand what was happening. Well, that gets back to what Berger would well understand in terms of the role of cosmopolitan elites. They, they are very self-referential. They listen to one another, and they assume that they are representative of their own cultures and nations, which it turns out, in almost every case, they actually are not. That's right. Few people can look back on more than a half century of sustained analysis, both in terms of European and American cultures, but also Christian thought and Christianity on both sides of the Atlantic. That's part of what makes a conversation with Oz Guinness of such interest. But it's not just that he has been intensely focused upon analyzing and watching American evangelicalism and the larger world picture. He has been incredibly thoughtful and generous in sharing those thoughts through his lectures and also, perhaps more importantly, through his books. Now, we're talking about the United States, so somehow the story shifts from China to Britain to the United States. You have been very interested in the United States. You've actually devoted so much of your intellectual energy and your uh, your writing life to uh, to a very important analysis of the United States. How did that happen? Well, take obvious things like the fact this is the world's lead society, so it's still enormously important. But on a faith level... This is the one country in the Western world – well, we take Poland seriously too – but the one country, certainly in the Protestant world, where you have a real chance of the church making a difference. I would argue, even say right now, the scandal of the American church is that we're still a huge majority of this country. Groups like, say, our Jewish friends are tiny. Groups like the LGBTQ people are tiny compared with us. And yet they're culturally infinitely more influential than we are because we're not the salt and light we should be. So there's, put it crudely, there's everything to play for in this country. Well, and your point's very well taken, but a part of the distinction there is uh, is that evangelical Christians in particular, um, conservative Protestants in the United States, have tended to take the culture for granted. And uh, cultural production is hard work. Cultural influence is uh, is exceedingly difficult, and it takes a long-term perspective. And much of this has just not fit the, the ethos of American evangelicalism. Yeah, if you isolate the last century, I would say for three-quarters of the 20th century, evangelicalism was pietistic and privatized. It wasn't engaging. But then suddenly waking up, and I see 1973 as the wake-up year, they swung to the opposite extreme of politicizing things and trusting politics to do more than politics can do. It's important, but you know, as Richard Newhouse used to say, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. It's downstream from the culture, as you were suggesting. And I think there's much more wisdom now, although there's a huge amount of confusion and plain uncertainty and demoralization, which is sad. In other words, confidence in the gospel is not where it should be. Yes, and understanding for those who 
would have confidence in the gospel of how the gospel applies to every dimension of life. So one of the criticisms made by outsiders, uh, someone like a Reinhold Niebuhr of American evangelicalism, is that it's pietism, it's conversionism is what he would say. And and so what I would say is absolutely necessary to understanding Christianity. He nonetheless would say it, it leads to a preoccupation with uh, with evangelism and pietism and uh, a disengagement from the culture. You know, I, I would just have to say that mainline Protestantism, of which he was very much a part, is the key example of how to lose the faith while trying to win the culture. Mm-hmm. Well, what he said was probably true of much of evangelicalism until the 70s. You know, I remember, say, knowing Carl Henry in his last years when he lived in D.C., his sorrow You can't express it too strongly the way, say, even Christianity Today, the magazine, had retreated from Washington, D.C. and being at the center of national life to Carol Stream and being somewhere out there in the suburbs rather than engaging nationally. And it was a matter of sorrow to him. Well, I I was Dr. Henry's editor uh, at the end of his life, and he was far more directly Mm -hmm. to me. Uh, personally, a mentor even than Dr. Schaefer, just because mm-hmm. of the of the age and uh, and the location. Great man. But yes, uh, and and so some years ago, I reprinted uh, for a, a special conference honoring Dr. Henry that first issue of Christianity Today under his editorship, and I was reminded, yes, of exactly why Christianity Today was located uh, there in uh, Washington D.C. He had convinced J. Howard Pugh and and others that and Billy Graham that it had to be right there at the center of of uh, policymaking and uh, and the culture. And in his very first editorial, he begins the very first paragraph by uh, by letting readers know that he's looking out his window at the White House. <laughs> and uh, that was a very clear statement. And when the, when the, the magazine moved to Carroll Stream, Illinois, he thought it was the absolute end mm-hmm. of, uh, of, a, of a grand experiment in evangelical presence in Washington, D.C. But in the same way, I'm glad to say that the Museum of the Bible – they are very proud to look out over the roof of that onto the Capitol yes. and so on. And they have a real sense of a major museum honoring the scriptures. But being right there in the heart of the city, and maybe soon they'll be right up there with the Air and Space Museum. And uh, you, know, you know, one of the interesting aspects of, of what that museum is going to represent is, uh, is just reminding people the centrality of the scripture to the American experience and uh, – I, I, I appreciate very much that ambition right there in the, the mall in a city that's become, in its own way, a very secular city. Well, there's a huge proportion of people of faith there, but often a very privatized faith. I mean, Bible studies in the Pentagon, right. K Street, and so on. And, of course, on Capitol Hill, a huge number go to it, Senate prayer breakfast, so-called, and and so on. But often a privatized faith in a very busy world, they rush in, rush out. The idea of thinking through what you're doing, that's rather rare. So, you know, one of the things I say, the missing element in America at the moment is leadership. On the order, we mentioned Churchill, but more specifically in this country, Lincoln, with his great sense of history of the founding documents and so on. The only person I've heard in 15 years approaching that is Senator Ben Sass, mm. Christian brother, but with a Absolutely. great sense of history and courage speaking out, an incredibly coherent worldview. Very oh, absolutely. rare. Absolutely. Very rare. Uh, in, in speaking of uh, Washington, D.C., by the way, my dear, dear friend for all my adult life, Dr. Mark Devers, a pastor right there at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and you're exactly and, – and my own daughter and son-in-law are members of that church. It's a, it, it, it's a reminder of the fact that 
that the gospel still very much has root in a city like Washington, D.C. There are a lot of Christians there. It is also a reminder of the fact that uh, that Christianity and affecting the culture is, as I said earlier, a very long project. Uh, the fact is that evangelicals not only tend to be very pietistic, they want to see what they believe are measurable results very quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, the gospel just doesn't historically tend to work that way. But that's not the pietism, is it? I mean the pietists had the long-term view. I would say my parents, who are the best of that sort of warm-hearted, devoted pietists, they thought in terms of the next century in their prayers and things. But what you're describing now, this sort of quantification, growth, success, that's you know a very American and actually a highly secular view. And I think we've got to do today a critique of the biblical view of numbers yes. and what it is we're really relying on. Well, and, you know, I, I say that and uh – I think, by the way, that part of this is because American pietism is deeply infected with pragmatism, uh, pietistic evangelicalism, that is. So when you speak of pietism in, in Europe, you're speaking of a definable theological tradition. I think in Germany in particular, you come to the United States, it tends to be more of a mood uh, yeah. because it emerges out of a very um, evangelistic, revivalistic uh, evangelicalism. It's really the piety of revivalism might be the better way to put it. And while you had, you know, Herberg's Protestant Catholic Jew, that sort of Christian consensus thin there, while it was there, the pietism, put it crudely, didn't matter culturally. No, it did theologically, but it didn't matter culturally. When that consensus collapsed, the pietism is exposed as terribly inadequate. It isn't salty and light-bearing in terms of creating culture the way you were talking. Now, in terms of your more recent work, uh, I think of the Williamsburg Charter and some of the other things you've done, uh, in terms of principled pluralism and uh, and chartered liberty, uh, a lot of that came out in the 1990s and uh, and even something like a decade ago. And uh, one of your very clearly articulated concerns at that time was that Christians had uh, had exited the national conversation and then sometimes re-entered it in ways that were unsophisticated sometimes unkind, um, and, and you put a premium on civility. Let me ask you to update that argument a bit. We had a, a, a conversation on my radio program years ago, and I told you that my concern was that certainly uh, I uh, – and, and, and by the way, I, am, I was an endorser of the Williamsburg Charter, and, and uh, civility I think is not only politically opportune, it's morally required by Scripture – uh, we're in an increasingly uncivil time, even by the time measurements of when you were writing that. I mean, if, if, in terms of our national culture, we don't appear to be becoming a more civil people. Oh, no, we've gone a long way the other way. I mean, you even take, say, religious freedom. You know, that was 88. The high watermark of religious freedom was probably the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in 93. Absolutely. Only three, as you know, voted against it in the entire Congress. And since then, the 20 years, particularly the eight years under President Obama, I would put it down to three R's. The reducers who reduced religious freedom to freedom of worship, yes, terribly inadequate. The removers who, particularly in the light of 9-11, saw religion as a messy, dangerous thing. And now freedom of religion is freedom from religion for many of these people. But the really insidious one is the third one, the so-called rebranders who now paint religious right. freedom as a code word for bigotry and hatred and so on. And that's a deliberate tactic, as you know, the LGBT people. So, you know, I'm not an American. 
I'm an outsider, but religious freedom is part of the genius of this country. Now, we as followers of Jesus, we're the pioneers of this. Go back to Tertullian, Lactantius, and then since the Reformation, Thomas Howells and Roger Williams, your great Baptists, and so on. We are the pioneers, and it is the genius of America. And in one generation, we're throwing this away. Yes, well, in a matter of uh, of a decade, uh, you know, we've gone to religious liberty or uh, religious freedom being put in scare quotes in major American newspapers. That's the rebranding. Absolutely appalling. And I, I alternate between sorrow and anger at seeing a country throw away what's its really birthright, the greatest part of its – the crown jewel of its heritage. In your latest book, uh, Fool's Talk, uh, you refer to something of the paradox of Christian evangelism and persuasion uh, in this odd cultural moment. And uh, I, I think one of your main themes certainly resonates with, uh, with evangelicals who are theologically and gospel-minded these days, especially a young generation of evangelicals. Uh, the oddness of the gospel has never been more pronounced than, uh, than in this very post – well, I won't say postmodern. This, this, this moment of late modernity, the gospel seems odder and odder. You, you, you can say that, and that's exactly right, but I, I think that's bracing. Another way of saying it is that things are so odd with the culture now. We find ourselves, along with our Jewish friends, as the last great defenders of human dignity or of human freedom or of equality or the notion of constitution. Covenant lies behind constitution. Many yes. people don't realize that. We are the last great defenders of these great essentials of just, free, open society. So while on the one hand, we are the odd men out, we're despised, hated, whatever, and we should bear that badge lightly as picking up our crosses with the Lord. But on the other hand, the privileges of it is we know we're not standing for something forlorn, passe, and outdated. No, we're fighting for what's essential to human future. And when you use the word bracing— uh, a great, great British term there. Um, Invigorating. It, it is exhilarating mm-hmm. uh, to think about the fact that this is not, first of all, by accident. We believe in a sovereign God whose providence is uh, is very evident in this moment. Uh, but also, it it reminds us that the gospel was born into a very similar kind of context. The the gospel was considered so bizarre by those who heard it uh, at the time that it was considered necessarily subversive to the Roman Empire. Uh, it is subversive to empire. It's subversive to, uh, to every principality in power. Um, it is exhilarating to think that what Christians now know to be true is what, uh, is what we now almost alone know to be true, but we desperately want others to know it. But we need a generation of young Christians who know the Lord, who know what they believe, why they believe, but have then thought it through and are able to articulate, say, the biblical view of human dignity, why humans are precious, you know, and of freedom. I mean, people come up to me. I've written one book on freedom. I've just finished a second. They say, well, the gospel's not interested in freedom. There's nothing really about freedom in the Bible. And I say, well, take the notion of sovereignty. They believe something like that. Sovereignty is God's freedom. He is sovereign. He is free. His will is free, etc. And he's made us in his image, not sovereign as he is, but significant and so on. We need to have a theological, biblical rationale for some of these essential truths and to realize we're on 
building a better society and holding the restraining hand back from the evil that is going to engulf our world if we just sit back. But I think the good news is that uh, there will be that generation of young Christians who are able to think that way. And, uh, and, and yet it will be because they have no choice. Uh, in order to remain faithfully Christian in a world in which the uh, what Lippmann called the acids of modernity have washed away all the cultural supports of religion, all the uh, all the cultural privilege to use a contemporary word mm-hmm. of uh, yeah. of religion, then what you're left with is a faithful Christianity that has to have that very deep theological, cultural, intellectual component, or it's going to disappear. And I'm glad to say, as you know well, that is strongly represented in the Reformed community, but. Equally go around the church, there's so many places with compromise, uncertainty, people say, do you really think we can, you know, and they share the doubts that are really there in their hearts and so on. And uh, you see for all those who are standing firm, a huge number of others compromising, fearful, demoralized, quite unnecessarily. Well, and uh, even just speaking pragmatically, we, we – we we are men of principle. We want to uh, we want to say that that's that's actually as we would expect it would be, given the importance of truth. Even at the merely pragmatic level, however, that's not working. I mean, you would think that those who are taking such a posture today would at least look at the stunning failure of the mainline liberal Protestant churches, following the very same methodology, uh, uh, well, decades ago, trying to quote an Englishman, Dean Inge. You know, the one who would uh, would marry the spirit yep. of the age will be a widow in the next. You would think that lesson would at least have been learned. Yeah, but look, as you know, well, this is the 500th anniversary of Reformation. How many evangelicals are discussing options of retreat? The Lord knows we're in a crisis. The Lord knows we need reform. But I'm amazed, say, at the lack of confidence publicly in the Reformation. I don't mean the reformed understanding of the gospel, but I mean things like calling, covenant, conscience, these things which have shaped our Western world. If ever there's a time to thank the Lord for the Reformation and to move out confidently in the light of its great truths is today. And yet so many people are entertaining rather different options. You know, sometimes it's just a lack of historical awareness, even at the level of popular history. Uh, Just uh, just in the last week, I read uh, John Julian Norch's uh, new book, Four Princes. Uh, It's actually brilliant. Uh, well, it, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It's, it's the great princes that uh, that shaped the 16th century: Charles V, uh, Henry VIII, uh, Francis I, and uh, Suleiman the Magnificent. Uh, just in terms of, of the, the these four rulers who so shaped the world. But what becomes very very clear talking about the Reformation and about freedom is that our contemporary inheritance of freedom comes almost entirely through through uh, Luther's Reformation. And its impact spreading throughout. So by the time you, you look at the modifications made by Charles V as the Holy Roman Emperor and uh, his allowance mm-hmm. of, uh, of, uh, of the German states uh, to, uh, to accept uh, the Reformation, and then, of course, the decisive, though complicated event with Henry VIII and the uh, Anglican uh, Reformation, our contemporary notions of freedom didn't come out of a vacuum. They came very much right out of that context. I have to say as an Englishman that the covenantal ideas in England were the lost cause. Sadly, they failed. The king came back. But the lost cause in England became the winning cause in New England. Yes. 
and covenant-shaped constitutionalism. And the American constitution is a nationalized, secularized form of covenant, as New England is. Even using have. the language. Absolutely. The reciprocity Absolutely. of language. Yeah. Yes. And we've got to recover that. I mean, put simply, democracy has no social content. And it's in trouble for other reasons. But covenantalism, constitutionalism is all about the type of society that you have and society should precede the state. In other words, things like families and schools are far more important than who's sitting in the White House and so on. So we've got an incredible amount very apt to say to America's present crisis. You have been uh, one of the most uh, seminal and influential intellectuals in the evangelical world now for over half a century. We're deeply indebted to you. As you are thinking about these things in the year 2017, uh, what, what do you see as most urgent now that perhaps uh, many American evangelicals are not, uh, are not thinking about, not noticing? Mm, to know the gospel. But I would say the thing I've almost hopped on, some people would say, and has not really been picked up is the idea of breaking with the culture. You know, if you look at Abraham, you leave the land, your birthplace and your father's family, there's a break with Egypt. There's a break with Babylon right at the heart of the Abrahamic call. And of course, in the New Testament too, be not conformed, but transformed. Now, many Christians break with bad ideas. I often say you could smell a relativist at 100 yards, but breaking with things like consumerism and stuff like that, American Christians haven't done a sufficiently good job of analyzing the world that they need to break. You mentioned numbers, success, growth, that sort of thing. We haven't analyzed that. You look at our churches and so on. So knowing the gospel, but also a much clearer understanding of the world we've got to radically break with. And then the third thing, moving out with incredible confidence in the Lord, championing many of these basic biblical things which are the key to the human future. And we haven't seen anything yet. If you look at what's coming Absolutely. from Silicon Valley, yes, singularity, transhumanism, transhumanism. Yes. this is incredible stuff. And only the gospel is a moral compass and a a weight against some of the insanities that are now – we're in a new Tower of Babel moment. If you've read this new book, Homo Deus, the title tells you everything. Yes. Godlings on the earth. Yes. And, and, so and, and, and it's, it's, I think, one of the most important – it is not a highly intelligent book. But it, and it's not even coherent in terms of some of his arguments. But it is, I think, a powerful sign of the times. And uh, especially this absolute confidence in uh, in transhumanism, singularity, uh, the defeat of mortality, uh, and and th we're talking about people who are everyday names in Silicon Valley who are putting billions, and I do mean billions of dollars into research in terms of defeating mortality. Um, we're living in a very interesting moment. One of those billionaire celebrities, you know, I mention his name. He has a blood transfusion every year with the blood of twenty-year-olds in order to. Get him closer to that immortality. We will see. We, we've we? got to tackle some of these ideas. That there Absolutely. aren't many Christians thinking Silicon Valley style. That's the tragedy. Yes, and uh, and and in terms of apologetics, it it seems always true. Just looking at historical theology, that uh, orthodoxy follows heresy. That is to say, the articulation of orthodoxy, the hardest Christian thinking in terms of, uh, of protecting and preserving the truth, often comes only after an external challenge. And uh, that's probably mm -hmm. a pattern that, uh, yep. that stays with us. We probably both love George Whitfield. There's a little 
line in his journals that I've always loved. He said, I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. And I've always found when you take the big questions, the big challenges, and really, how does the gospel answer this one? You grow and come back with gratitude and wonder and worship at the sense the Lord is bigger than all these things. And your faith grows as you see it when you take on the big ones. Well, I've appreciated so much the conversation. Earlier, we mentioned Winston Churchill, and in these, uh, these last moments, I thought of Churchill's uh, oft-quoted comment when he said, uh, you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing uh, after they've tried everything else. <laughs> and uh, perhaps that will be true of America's well, evangelicals in this moment as well. I think we've got to take a little bit more of the Lord into the equation than Churchill did, but I liked his comment. Though. Well, and I, f- I fully understand it because it was said in a wry moment as often he did. Uh, he, he, uh, he turned a headline into uh, a, a word of hope. and uh, That's true. And, and I, I think there's a sense in which that's almost deeply Augustinian. But, Al, when we're talking about some of the left liberal things, they are a repudiation of everything that we consider quintessentially American, and that's the danger Absolutely. of it. Well, and and that raises the question as to uh, whether some of these toxins that are now infused into the system are survivable. And, uh, well, time will tell. In any event, I'm deeply indebted, as I have been for so many decades of my life, to you. I thank you for your writings, for your influence. And, Os Guinness, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Well, my appreciation is mutual, and thanks for having me on. half century and more has seen such a remarkable change in the way human beings think, especially in terms of the modern West. We're now looking at a situation that is so utterly radically changed from that which would have been taken as normal in terms of thought patterns and social patterns just a half century ago, that it's almost impossible for us to take into full account the sheer magnitude of all these changes. But one of the most keen observers during all of these decades has been Oz Guinness, and what a story he tells just in terms of the conversation today. Born in China, just on the precipice of the communist revolution there, experiencing some of the hardest and most cataclysmic decades of the 20th century, and from such a unique vantage point. And, of course, then raised as he was not only in China but also educated in Britain, he eventually came to Christ and also he came to a major position of influence within evangelicalism. The story of how he went from China to Britain to Labrie in Switzerland and then, of course, to the United States, it's quite an unfolding story. And it reminds us of the fact that Christianity validates that we are talking about human beings, flesh and blood human beings, in space and time, with unique experiences. We cannot separate ourselves as the Gnostics ought to do in terms of our thought life from our physical life or our intellectual life from our own personal history. When it comes to thinking in public, that's something that Os Guinness has been doing for decades now, and he has been helping others to do it as well. But he has a particular commitment to the gospel, which comes through very, very clearly in terms of this conversation, in terms of his books, and in terms of his writing. But we also need to recognize that he has been something of a prophet in terms of helping evangelicals to understand not only the cultural opportunity, but the responsibility, the Christian gospel, theological responsibility for evangelicals to address the issues of the day and to do so, especially here in the United States, from a position of rare privilege. 
As is so often the case with these conversations, today's conversation is one that I certainly hope in the future we will be able to continue. I deeply appreciate Oz Guinness for joining me today for Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.